everyone and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc, etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. How's your quarantine been? Oh, you know, it's it's great. Just having the best time of my life. Oh, my God. She's scratching on the door, like I said she would. Speaking of cats, so I have a cat named Gary. Her full name is Gary Laser Eyes. If anyone's seen Trailer Park Boys, that's... Where we got the name from, yeah, she's a girl cat. Her name is Gary, laser eyes. Don't be sexist. Anyone can be anything. But anyway. I think it took me like a year to realize that she was a girl. Doesn't <laughs> like, matter. Boy. It's a cat. Like, she doesn't yeah, do true. much. Um, gender is a construct. Anyway, so <laughs> I've been trying to like clean the house and like get caught up on that. But my house seems messier than ever apartment not house um it seems messier than ever so our cat has like the tendency to if you leave towels on the floor she'll pee on them or if you leave like clothes on the floor she'll pee on them and it doesn't happen all the time so I'm you know usually pretty good about picking that stuff up off the floor but there was towels on the floor she peed on them and we have like a shared laundry room that we use on the first floor so I never want to just like straight wash the towels because I feel like that's gross like I don't want to just put straight cat pee so I was soaking them in a tub before with like oxyclean and like trying to get the cat pee smell out (laughs) and so I was like walking by it and I straight up just dropped my phone into the bucket of soaking cat pee and I was like oh my god and I like dove my hand in like picked it up was trying to wipe it off but I'm like, oh my god, not only did she pee, which is just disgusting, but I just straight up dropped my phone in cat urine. That is disgusting. Oh my gosh. How's your phone? It's fine. Just like gross. And you know, since all the stores are like low on cleaning products right now, like all I have is a watered down spray bottle of bleach. So I'm like bleaching my phone. <laughs> It's disgusting. I guess, like, the silver lining is it didn't get ruined, but... Yeah. Ugh. I'm just not feeling this quarantine. Not cool, Gary. Also, yeah, Gary, what the heck? Um, yeah, that sounds awful. I, I'm i glad that that didn't happen to me, because I probably would have, like, lost my mind. I'm very irrational, <laughs> so I would have freaked out. Yeah, overall, you know, having a cat is not that bad like compared to the stories of your dog and kind of the chaos he can cause (laughs) it's 
I feel like I should appreciate what I have, but it's like, come on, dude, we're all stuck in here together. Do you have to go peeing on stuff? Like, Ollie, surprisingly, has been handling this quarantine really well. And I think it's just because he has us home all day long. But the other night I, like, wake up and he's, like, right next to my face. And I'm like, okay, you're no longer allowed to sleep in the bedroom. Like, you have to go somewhere Ollie, else. Ollie, we need to practice social distancing right now. You yeah, get out. so... He's a super weird dog. So today our topic, which was picked by Natalie, is mob ladies. Yes. Female mobsters. Female female mobsters or women involved in organized crime. Um, Thought it would be a pretty cool spin. I feel like most of the um, mobsters we hear of are like guys, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Sammy the Bull and Al other Capone. exactly and so let's see what the ladies were doing <laughs> yeah so you're up first so today I'm going to tell you about Harlem mobster Madam Queen Stephanie St. Clair who dominated Harlem's number racket scene Um, According to Shirley Stewart, a biographer, Stephanie was born in 1897 on the French West Indies island of Mulgrunter, which is now present-day Guadeloupe. Uh, She was of mixed African and French descent. Stephanie was raised by a single mother who became ill and died before Stephanie was an adult. As a disclaimer, there are a lot of discrepancies in the various online accounts about the life of Stephanie St. Clair that I found. Um, So, for instance, some accounts say that she was born 10 years earlier in 1887 instead of 97. But uh, for the most part, I try to do my best to piece everything together um, and get it as accurate as I think it could be. Um, But I may not be relying too heavily on dates. After her mother's death, Stephanie had to stop her schooling and became a housemaid for a wealthy white family for several years. According to TheRoot.com, she was repeatedly sexually assaulted by the son of the family. Eventually, Stephanie was able to escape or leave that job and that family, and she chartered a ship to New York City in the 1910s. The voyage took several months, and during that trip she is when she learned English. So she landed in Harlem and began a very eventful life. Uh, She had a number of relationships that did not end very amicably. Uh, So she had a boyfriend who tried to pimp her out. And so naturally she stabbed him in the eye with a fork. Good for her. Uh, Right. Um, uh, She fled on a bus and that bus ended up getting stopped by the Ku Klux Klan. um, And they allegedly sexually assaulted her. Um, And then a later boyfriend attacked her and tried to choke her. And in doing so, he allegedly fell and hit his head on the table and died. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if she possibly, you know, pushed him or something to kind of. Sounds like he had it coming. Yeah, I'm I'm making no judgments here. Um, Okay, so Stephanie also had a relationship with a black militant cult leader affectionately named Black Hitler with whom she got into a violent altercation with, and that ended with her shooting at him. She was arrested for attempted murder, and she reportedly defended herself by saying, if I had wanted him dead, he would be dead. Um, So she definitely seems like... Solid case there, I guess. (laughs) She seems like a class act. Um, 
So Stephanie's life in organized crime began with selling drugs. She earned somewhere between $10,000 and $20,000, which using inflationcalculator.com is somewhere between $150,000 and $300,000 in today's money. So uh, she was making bank. And so she took that money and invested it in her rackets business. And so if you're anything like me, you have no idea what rackets are. Uh, so I looked it up. Uh, rackets are also known as policy banking, which includes investments, gambling, and the lottery. Uh, and so thanks to the ever-present system of systematic racism um, and all that comes with it, Black people weren't allowed to go to banks or participate in formal banking. And so she offered them a way to invest their money while also, I'm sure, offering advice to some people in the form of gambling. Uh, It also functioned as an underground banking system that was somewhat protective against the Great Depression. And so the rackets business also created a lot of jobs and contributed to the wealth of for a lot of people in that community, which was primarily African-American. And so regardless of that, she what she was doing at the time was very much illegal. Um, still, Stephanie was very much activist-minded. She tried to help the Black community as much as possible and did things like taking out ads in the newspaper to educate the community about police brutality, corruptions, and their legal rights against um, police. And unsurprisingly that made a lot of police officers angry and so they found ways to charge her with crimes some that she did commit some that were kind of trumped up against her and eventually they were able to send her to a work workhouse for just under a year before she was released um of course in her own illegal dealings in the years prior stephanie had done her fair share of paying off police officers to continue her business dealings And so Stephanie was ultimately able to use this information to her advantage. So after she got out, she testified to the Hofstadter Committee, which was a legal, like a legislative investigative committee in New York that was created by FDR um, when he was governor. And basically she came clean to this committee about the officers that she paid off. And so like over a dozen officers got fired. Oh wow! And so she fought fire with fire a little bit there. And so as the Great Depression settled in, other mobsters who dominated other parts of New York City felt their profits take a hit. And so they tried moving in on Stephanie's territory in Harlem. Um, And obviously these mobsters, these other mobsters were largely white or of Italian descent. Um, And so one of those mobsters was Dutch Schultz, who very annoyingly started threatening her and buying off the police. He went as far as kidnapping and murdering the men who worked for her. Um, Like he was just going all out to just kind of encroach on her business. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so Stephanie um, was not easily intimidated and she definitely was not playing around. So one time when Dutch sent someone to harass her without missing a beat, she pushed him and locked him (laughs) into a closet and had her bodyguards quote, take care of him end quote, as far as I know, they never saw him again. And then she decided to destroy as many of Dutch's storefronts as he as she could, particularly the storefronts that kind of housed his betting businesses. Um, and then she tipped off the police to his activities, which resulted in a police raid where 14 of Dutch's employees were arrested and the police ended up confiscating over $2 million. Um, And so then, like a truly unfazed queen, uh, she bragged about what she did to the newspapers. And so, um, so yeah, she was like not playing around at all with this guy. 
then eventually Dutch Schultz was shot in the stomach while using the toilet. Um, <laughs> oh, I, that's not where I would want to die. Yeah. Well, he survived technically getting shot. Um, and it wasn't, as far as I could tell, it wasn't at the hands of Stephanie or, you know, at her orders. But um, the moment Stephanie found out that uh, he was on his deathbed, she immediately sent him a telegram and said, so you sow, so ye shall reap, um, signed Madam Queen Policy. So she kind of gloated there on his deathbed. Okay, And so because of her battle with Dutch, she ultimately had to turn over the reins of her business to her apprentice, Bumpy Johnson, um, who Bumpy. also acted, <laughs> yeah, Bumpy, uh, who also acted as her protector. Um, basically, when she was um, at war with, Dult- with Dutch, she took out insurance policies. Basically, she was very open to like the press and like, Uh, the newspapers about where she would be and what she was doing because she was letting everyone know what where her whereabouts were going to be she tried to keep her nose clean and stay out of um, any illegal dealings and so um, for the period of her time while she was at war with Dutch she didn't really do anything illegal um, while Bumpy Johnson was running her businesses and so even after Dutch's death, Stephanie decided to abandon her life of organized crime and focused on political reform and civil and economic rights for African-Americans. And that's when she met her eventual husband, Black Hitler, um, whose real name was Sufi Abdul Hamid. Um, this guy was like a very interesting character. He wasn't a very decent or honest person. Um, he had very like, I don't even know if Black Militant is the appropriate like term but he he just had very like anti-semitic like i don't even know weird views and was also a liar like he you know said that he was born in africa in egypt he was really born in chicago um like all all that sort of stuff and he was very open about cheating on um stephanie he cheated on her with particularly a fortune teller who from what I can tell, was not Asian, but claimed to be Asian. Um, I think her name was, like, Dorothy. And um, then he he and the woman that he was cheating on Stephanie with took, like, Stephanie's money and tried, like, opening various businesses. And at a certain point, Stephanie, like, had enough. And that's when they got into a huge physical altercation and Stephanie shot at him. And that ended up with Stephanie having to go to prison for three years. Um, After that, uh, she and Black Hitler divorced, and she actually ended up leading a very quiet life, no longer really participating in organized crime, and she died at the age of 73 in 1969. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so... That's a very... I think it's... It's pretty pretty different than some of our other cases. I think a lot of our other cases have like a bit of an undertone of, you know, is this person a psychopath? Is this Munchausen's like mm-hmm. different diagnoses? And it just seems like she, you know, made a dollar out of 15 cents and, you know, really cornered part of the market that even though it was very illegal, um, had some of its positive impacts on um, the black community a bit. Um 
but yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about as you were, you know, I never want to glorify crime or people hurting other people, but in a case like this where there's really a broken system and just by trying to exist and trying to, you know, other people were able to have successful businesses and um you know use banks and stuff just because they were white whereas this person you know was just by trying to be equal they were breaking the law which is just ridiculous and i was also thinking you know what if she was born like these days and had better opportunities she'd probably be like a super awesome like ceo of some company or you know yeah just she clearly had like a hustle and knew what she was doing and and how to make money so if she had better opportunities what what should what would she have been able to accomplish given that she's living in a time where there was a very low ceiling i feel like on how well african-americans or people of color could do um just you know something as simple as not having a bank can have a very big impact on how much your money can grow or how like financially stable you can be yeah and you know she saw an opportunity to kind of create that like infrastructure a little bit um and i mean it defied you know the effects of the great depression in a way um but you know it was illegal yeah and um she well you were talking about cases of domestic violence where she was just put in a position where she was defending herself and you know ended up in jail which is just really sad those kind of cases like it's unfair when women are having to defend themselves and then get put in jail for defending themselves um that kind of goes along the lines of it being a broken system not cool don't enjoy it but i'm glad that she was able to you know kind of make the most of her situation and and able to help so many people out that's great yeah and i mean she became a millionaire so good for her girl (laughs) good for her um cool lady my case now i guess is not as cool i i'll you'll you'll see i'll just start um so my sources today my biggest source was wikipedia and then i also got some information from the barker gang article on the oklahoma historical society page and so i will dive right in so my case is about the infamous gang mobster mom lady Um, She went by Ma Barker. So she was born Arizona Clark. Um, She was born October 8th, 1873. And this was actually interesting because I had never, outside of Grey's Anatomy, I've never heard of anyone being named Arizona ever. I kind of like the name. I don't know. Maybe. Me too. Maybe it's because of Arizona from Grey's. But I don't know. Something about it. I kind of like it. No, I like it too. I don't know. Yeah, I. it's not a name that you would think that someone would have, but I, I also really did like the character, so maybe that's why. But um, she was born 1873, and in 1892, she married George Barker. They had four sons together, Herman, Lloyd, Parker, and Fred. 
Her husband bounced around between jobs. He was working as a farmer, worked as a station engineer, as a clerk and a watchman. Uh, Ma, I assume, was at home caring for the household and the children. It was said that the Barkers didn't really care about their children's education, and it was likely that her kids were illiterate. Um, so I'm going to take a slight detour and focus on some of the crimes committed by her sons. I know our podcast is women-specific, but um, it's really kind of hard to avoid talking about them at all in this case. So starting in the 1910s, the Barker children started to get involved with crime, including robbery and murder. Her son, Herman, died by suicide in 1927. Mm -hmm. He had committed a robbery. Um, He was trying to get away and he got in a really bad car accident. He was seriously injured and he ended up shooting himself to avoid prosecution. So her other sons were incarcerated in various prisons during this time. Um, And after their son had passed away, um, Ma and George would get into fights about their children's criminal activity. And it really seemed to escalate after Herman's death, which, you know, I think it is really hard for any family, any couple to, to have a child die, especially in such a kind of wild way so I can imagine that was a real strain on their relationship that didn't sound like it was going so well in the first place um so George wasn't a criminal himself but he would profit off of his son's criminal activity um and uh but eventually you know he was getting a little bit fed up with it but Ma was willing to do whatever it was to keep her boys out of jail Ma had threw George out of the house. She was supposedly dating other men and had adapted a life of loose morals. Um, (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) I don't know, but she wasn't being faithful, I guess, to her husband. He wasn't a fan of that. She threw him out. Makes sense. (laughs) So during the time that her children were in jail, Ma had ended up getting together with this man named Arthur Dunlap who eventually became her common-law husband. Uh, Her and Arthur had joined the gang together, and uh, they all made their way over to Chicago. um, And, you know, were doing their gang activities there. But one of the gang members didn't want to work for Capone, so they ended up moving on over to St. Paul, Minnesota. And so Ma's husband, Arthur, really struggled with alcohol abuse. He was not trusted by the other members of the gang. And there was actually an incident where the police were tipped off about the gang's whereabouts and nearly got caught. They blamed Arthur and ended up murdering him while they were traveling, leaving his body in Wisconsin. Loyalty. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) It's not so great. Um, While they were in Wisconsin, Fred would hide Ma, keep her separate from the gang activities. Um, One of the reasons for this was because Ma would try to break up their relationships. She would get in between her son and girlfriends, and she had a really hard time getting along with any other women in the gang. Um, In 1933, the gang was back in St. Paul, Minnesota, They were being tracked by the FBI after they kidnapped some wealthy businessmen and held them for ransom. And Fred and his mother were hiding out in Chicago and laundering the ransom money. So the gang had ended up 
relocating later to a hideout. You might have to help me out with this one. Oklahoma, Florida? Yeah, it's probably um, Native American. We'll just roll with it. Hideout. They were hiding in Florida. Um, one of her children was arrested in Chicago, and they found a map in his possession alerting the FBI of the gang's whereabouts, so where they were hiding out in Florida. So the FBI... How smart is it to carry a map of where you're doing illegal things? I don't know. Maybe because he was in Chicago and it was in Florida. Didn't I mean, they didn't have Google Maps back in the day, so how else was he supposed to find where they were? I mean, I guess, but... Maybe make it coded? I don't know. <laughs> From what I read, it didn't really seem like these were the smartest criminals in the crayon box. What's the saying? They weren't the sharpest crayon in the box. Um, they were... <laughs> okay. <laughs> not so smart, these people. And not nice. They were killing people and kidnapping people for money. That's not cool. So, um, the FBI was alerted of where this gang was hiding out. They surrounded the Florida home on the morning of January 16th, 1935. Unbeknownst to the FBI, all of the gang members, except for Fred and Ma, had left a few days earlier. They ordered Fred and Ma to surrender. Fred said, heck no, and he opened fire on the FBI, which is, I think, another point proving that they were not sharp crayons because... Yeah, usually pretty ill-advised. Don't shoot at the... Don't shoot at the FBI. You're cornered. Don't even shoot at local PD. (laughs) Don't shoot at anyone for that matter. Um, And there was a shootout that that lasted several hours that resulted in the death of Fred and Ma. So here's a messed up fact. Supposedly, people had come to watch the shootout. It did last several hours. So... It was even said that people were having picnics outside of the house, just watching the shootout happen. That's insane. Like, I understand it was the 1930s, and maybe there wasn't Netflix at the time, but really, like, you just go and have a picnic and watch an FBI shootout? That's what you do? Yeah, that seems People in Florida are crazy. Hey, we're not that bad. (laughs) I get, like, how lucky is it that it wasn't, like in the age of like cell phones because this would be like all over the internet like i guess you know our society does terrible stupid things nowadays too just in different ways yeah i'm just imagining a very queen latifah-esque um in set it off kind of death well yeah and so that's the thing is that fred was out there shooting but i didn't see anything saying that ma was Um, taking part of this so she was possibly like a casualty kind of She's there, but not not the antagonizer. Yes. So this is this is what I wanted to wrap up with. Um, so this I was talking to you before we started recording and saying this case didn't really end up being what I thought it was going to be. So in pop culture, Ma was portrayed as this criminal mastermind, and she was the leader of the gang. The FBI had nicknamed her Bloody Mama. And J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI at the time, claimed that she was the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal brain of the last decade. However, this did not appear to be the case. So from what I was reading, it seemed like she was aware of her son's crimes 
and would help them out before and after committing crimes, but she did not appear to cause any of the ruckus herself. So she wasn't exactly an innocent bystander. She wasn't completely involved in the crime. She wasn't coming up with all these ideas. Um, So apparently a notorious bank robber of the time, Harvey Bailey said, Ma couldn't plan a breakfast, let alone a criminal enterprise. Wow, mean. Yeah, and so I, I mean, as I was saying the story, as I was writing all these things down, you know, it didn't really seem like she had done much herself. She was just kind of there and would do things. So having her around was helpful for the gang because they could portray themselves as a family if they were, you know, trying to rent a home or an apartment or whatever. And she was also in charge of taking care of the gang, uh, paying bills, doing household activities. And I even read that the gang would send her to the movies when they were out committing crimes. So (laughs) she wasn't there. I, I mean, she knew about it. She didn't do anything to stop it, but... She, she wasn't, wasn't the really... mastermind. She wasn't involved. Exactly, exactly. Which is so interesting because there are apparently a ton of movies. Um, let's see. Ma Barker's Killer Brood, Bloody Mama, and Public Enemies um, were just a, f- a few films that had come out after. And it it was said that, you know, after her death that they were trying to kind of paint this terrible picture of her so the FBI didn't look bad for killing an older woman. Which makes sense, I guess. You know, what's um, interesting is um, for my case with Stephanie St. Clair, the only films that come out, like, that are out with her, like, involved, she's like a peripheral kind of character. They, like focus on Bumpy Johnson as if he's the one who created this like criminal enterprise that really she created and she's just kind of like the sidekick which I find very interesting that she's not the dude's name's Bumpy yeah you think a Bumpy would be in charge of anything or be capable of any I'm sorry he apparently was very terrifying but I just think it's really interesting like in your case they've like painted her out to be some big thing that she wasn't and then in um, the case of uh, Stephanie St. Clair they've really kind of like diminished like a little bit of like like the grandiosity of what she was actually doing and her role in all of it so which is crazy because I would 100% watch a movie about her life she sounds really interesting really I agree complex (laughs) again I really don't want to like glorify crime but there was, like, this whole broken system, and she was just trying to, like, do her thing and make sense of it. Whereas, like, my person... Yeah, I know that we like to talk about, like, the psychology of of it all, and it seems like during this time, the whole gang movement was a thing easy to get caught up in. It seemed like especially... a thing to do. I don't know. I look, at, I, I look at the past. I watch a lot of television shows that are, like, I don't know, set in... I don't know, 1800s, whatever, like really old and timey things. And all anyone ever does is get in trouble, like with the law. And I get it. Like, there's no Netflix, there's no internet. Like, I'd probably be a criminal too. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, there's nothing to entertain these people. So, I suppose that's one way of looking at it. 
Um, but also, like, their family, in, in my case, you know, came from a background of being very poor. It came from a background of poverty. And this was maybe a way of, and like, her children were said to be illiterate. So maybe that lack of education and just getting mixed up with the wrong people, not having good ways to make money or, you know, rise up. Yeah. pick themselves up by their bootstraps and yeah i think you're making make money a, i think you're making a really good point there because even now like thinking about the overpopulated prison system that we have you know people are getting arrested for selling drugs people are getting arrested for this and that at the end of the day like we can call them whatever we want but they are crimes of poverty right like if this person had in not in every case but you would imagine that certain people if they did have more options and weren't as disenfranchised no they wouldn't be robbing a liquor store for 50 dollars and ending up in jail for how long because that just happened to be their third offense you know and so i think that throughout history and even now we are like very much seeing the effects of poverty and then how it can turn people to crime even with Stephanie yeah. St. Clair, I mean, she had to live somehow. Right, right, exactly. Or, it, yeah, it's not fair if you can't rise up the same way that, that other people can. That's not, that's so cool. I've actually, this is so on topic. I've been watching um, a lot of, there's like a group, I, not a group. There's a few people that, women, that had been in jail or in prison and are now turned youtuber <laughs> influencers cool. and so i've been watching their youtube videos while we've been in this quarantine just because it's it's so fascinating to hear their sides of the story and kind of how they've turned their life around and stuff but it's also it's just very sad because um the women you know are struggled with addiction in the past and didn't have proper access to medical treatment for for their addictions or just had like really terrible childhoods were bounced around in the foster care system um and it's just like yeah certain people are not set up to excel in life and it's just that much harder for them to not that you know crime is okay but but when you're dealing with a system that's stacked against you it's kind right of... there are a lot more barriers for some people yeah. or in the case of you know having not supportive and abusive parents is so sad i don't like that yeah agreed <laughs> on that note <laughs> ending that on a high note there <laughs> keeping it real keeping it fresh at least my cat has stopped terrorizing the apartment perfect timing Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.